Welcome to another collection of big band broadcasts from the golden age of radio in the USA. Live broadcasts from network radio studios as well as hotel ballrooms, supper clubs and local bandstands. On demand from our podcast websites bigbandremote.com and radiothen.network. Good evening, and welcome to a one-night stand with the big bands. This is Arnold Dean. It was strictly by coincidence that our program for the month of December was scheduled on the evening of December 7th, exactly 30 years to the day after Pearl Harbor, 1941. So tonight on a one-night stand with the big bands, we'll be reminiscing. What was the year 1941 like, before, during, and after Pearl Harbor? And that'll be the subject of our one-night stand with the big bands tonight. Welcome to a one-night stand with the big bands. The golden decade of the big bands ran from 1936 to 1946, so the year 1941 was right smack dab in the middle. And it was a great year for many bands you'll be hearing tonight. It was an especially big year for Tommy Dorsey. Yes, indeed. Hallelujah, I mean, when it hits you, 
You shall let me in there. Well, all right then. When it hits you, you holler. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. With Joe Stafford and the great Tommy Dorsey Orchestra featured to open our one-night stand with the big bands, that was one that was oh so famous and still sounds just as good today, a solid rock of a spiritual-like piece, right from the great Jimmy Lunsford band. And the connecting link, of course, was the man who said, yes, indeed, right at the beginning, Cy Oliver. Featured in the band, Ziggy Allman, Ray Lynn, Chuck Peterson, and Jimmy Blake. It was recorded on February 17th of 1941. About as good a place as any to start our reminiscences of 1941 would be with the fashions of the year. Before the war, the American fashion world had never tried to stand on its own creative legs, though homegrown garment designers and manufacturers ran a $3 billion industry in the United States. They always trusted Paris to tell them what styles to create, what fabrics to use, and where to place buttons and beads. But when the fashion oracles in Paris were suddenly shut off by the war, Americans had to make all these crucial decisions themselves for the very first time. The Reverend Dr. A. Powell Davies of Washington, D.C., said some years later, if American women humiliate themselves by following these imbecilic fashion changes like a herd of ludicrous cattle, their 20th century emancipation is just an empty boast. But if the girls' fashions were something that year, what about the men's fashions? Peacock colors, zoot suits with a reet pleat, a right stripe and a drape shape. Do you remember the zoot suit with shoulders out to here, knees that bagged oh so far out, and pants that were pegged to the point where a man not only had to take off his shoe to slip them on, but in some cases almost had to slip off his foot? They were wild, and there was a great deal of music written about the zoot suits with the reet pleats. I want a zoot suit with the reet pleat with the great shape and the stuff cuff to look sharp enough. See my Sunday gal. I want to read sleep with the right stripes and the dress vest and the glad plaid and the ladies' bed. To see my little Sunday gal. I want to look keen so my dream will stay. You don't look like the same boy, so keen that she'll scream. Here comes the walking rainbow, sweet to make a suit. Suit with the re-pleat, with the great shape and the stuff. Cup to look sharp enough to see my Sunday girl.
with the zop, zop with the hip, flip and the lace, wait in the sharpest taste to see my Sunday man. Do, 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 do. I want a scab hat with the trim, brim and the zag, bag with the rib, zip to look plenty here to see my Sunday friend. I want to look keen so my dream will stay. Hey, lies a lucky fella. So that he'll scream. Baby's in Technicolor. I want a brown gown, soft top with the hip lift lace in the shopper's thing to see my Sunday man. Jay Kaiser and the orchestra with Sully Mason, Trudy, Jack, and Max in a zoot suit for my Sunday gal. On June 13th of 1941, the old U.S. submarine 09 sank with a loss of 33 men during a deep-sea diving test in the Atlantic about 24 miles east of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. The National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. was opened, housed in a marble building erected at a cost of $15 million dollars from funds that were provided by Andrew William Mellon, Pittsburgh capitalist and Secretary of the Treasury under Presidents Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover. Many of the books of the year were books that we well remember here 30 years later. The Strange Woman by Ben Ames Williams, The Keys of the Kingdom, Archibald Joseph Cronin, and, of course, the well-remembered Berlin Diary by William Lawrence Shirer. The big sporting event of the year is one that's so well remembered 30 years later and probably will still be a record unbroken 30 years hence. Joe DiMaggio, the center fielder of the New York American League team, the Yankees, set a record by hitting safely in 56 straight games, which led Les Brown and the band of renown to record this. We need a hit, so here I go. Ball one. Yeah. Ball two. Yeah. Right one. Ooh. Right two. Yeah. Yeah. A case of Wheaties. Coast to coast, 
That's all you'll hear of Joe, the one-man show. He's glorified the horse-hide fear, jolting Joe DiMaggio. Joe, Joe DiMaggio, we want you one hard time. He'll live in baseball's Hall of Fame, he got their blow-by-blow. Our kids will tell their kids his name, jolting Joe DiMaggio. We dream of Joey with a light brown We want you on our side. And now they speak in whispers low of how they stopped our Joe. One night in Cleveland, oh, oh, oh. You're kidding. I dream of Joey with the light brown bat. That was music of 1941, saluting Joe DiMaggio with a vocal by Betty Bonney and the guys in the Les Brown Band of Renown. Across much of the world, World War II was raging in 1941. President Franklin D. Roosevelt had begun his third term in the United States, the first American president to be so elected, incidentally, breaking the tradition against a third term that had been established by George Washington. As safeguards of American democracy against the spreading menace of Hitlerism, the United States instituted various government agencies and policies. Of far-reaching effect abroad was the $7 billion Lend-Lease Act, signed by President Roosevelt March 10th of 1941, of aid to Great Britain. To prevent profiteering at home, the OPA, the Office of Price Administration, was set up. To protect the country against the hazards of war, the Office of Civilian Defense was created in May of that year. Shortly thereafter, President Roosevelt declared an unlimited state of national emergency, and pledged assistance to all nations engaged in resisting Nazi aggression, and ordered the freezing of the assets of Germany and Italy in the United States, the seizure of their vessels in American ports, and the closing of German consulates. The president enunciated four principles of human liberty, known collectively as the four freedoms, namely freedom of speech and expression, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Meanwhile, U.S. Marines were landed on July 7th in Iceland at the request of its government. And President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Winston Churchill of Great Britain met in an undisclosed spot in the North Atlantic and drafted the eight principles of a document called the Atlantic Charter. By executive order, the Office of Lend-Lease Administration was established in October, and the sum of a billion dollars was made available to Russia under the plan on November 6th. In Washington... A conference on the situation in the Far East was held with Japanese envoys concerning their country's invasion of Thailand, the Malay Peninsula, and the Burma Road. In Havana, Cuba, representatives of Latin American republics and the United States met in a Pan-American conference to consolidate economic and military cooperation for the defense of the Western Hemisphere. The entire situation climaxed, of course, on December 7th of 1941 when a broadcast of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra was interrupted by John Daly this way. 
We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, by air, President Roosevelt has just announced. The attack also was made on all naval and military activities on the principal island of Oahu. Without warning, after President Roosevelt had addressed a personal appeal to Emperor Hirohito of Japan to avoid further conflict in the Pacific, Japanese warplanes had blasted the port of Pearl Harbor near Honolulu, Hawaii, the Philippines, Wake, and the islands of Guam. Ensign John F. Kennedy, USNR, was at Griffith Stadium in Washington when it happened, watching the Redskins win 20-14 to over the Philadelphia Eagles. The stadium did not give the news over the loudspeaker. Young Kennedy heard it over the car radio going home and immediately put in for active sea duty. A pretty black-haired girl complained in Palm Springs. Everybody knew this was going to happen, so why spoil a perfectly good Sunday afternoon worrying about it? At a newsstand in Michigan and Randolph in Chicago, a fat woman saw the headlines and said, What's this? We're at war, lady, for crying out loud. She answered, well, what do you know? Who with? And at the same time, FDR called Secretary Grace Tully into his study and started dictating. Yesterday, comma, December 7, comma, 1941, dash, a date which will live in infamy, dash. Pearl Harbor, of course, affected the lives of us all. It had an immediate effect on Artie Shaw, who enlisted for the service post-haste. I got in there because I figured that was a war that, well, for whatever reasons it started, we had to put an end to it. I mean, there was something so horrific going on that you had to do it. I couldn't see these waiters continue playing music while that was happening. I was embarrassed. I mean, I remember when it busted out, I was in, I was in Providence playing at a theater, and suddenly the, a note was handed to me from the manager of the theater, please make an announcement. I looked at it. And it, oh, and I was out in the wings while somebody was doing a dance or something on stage. Band was on. And I heard that a little stagehand's radio and said something about the Japs have attacked Pearl Harbor, blah, blah, blah. No one knew where Pearl Harbor was, really, you know. It was a Sunday morning, and there we were doing our thing. And this note came, go out and make an announcement. And the announcement said, will all servicemen please report to their bases immediately? The uh, war is about to break, blah, 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 you know, whatever. And I didn't notice how many servicemen were in the theater. We weren't, we weren't thinking about that. You know, Hitler was out there on the horizon somewhere, but we weren't thinking too much about a war yet. It was their war. It wasn't our war. And about half the audience got up when I made that announcement. And I suddenly realized, you know, there was a big military force of men around. And I began to think, well, how can I stand up here doing this? The next number was Stardust. I had Will all military men please return to their bases? And now, ladies and gentlemen, Hoagie Carmichael started. That seemed about as dumb a statement as I ever heard. So I turned at the man. I remember turning to Les Robinson sitting in the front section. I said, well, kids, better start looking for a job after the first of the year. And I remember his face. He said, what? I said, I'm going and I'm going to join up. And they all looked at each other. Word passed through the band. And like that was the end of an era. You know, for me, it was the end of an era. So I joined the Navy, right? Artie Shaw. Earlier in 1941, his orchestra had earned him one of his eight million-selling gold records with this recording of Frenesy.
listening to a one-night stand with the big bands. And you are tuned to WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut, 1080 on your radio dial. This is your host, Arnold Dane. Motion pictures of the year 1941 included Greer Garson in Blossoms in the Dust. Citizen Kane, a memorable movie by Orson Welles, featuring Orson Welles. Here comes Mr. Jordan, starred Robert Montgomery. How Green Was My Valley, Walter Pidgeon, Maureen O'Hara, and a cast of many other famous stars. King's Row, which featured Ann Sheridan, Robert Cummings, Ronald Reagan, and Betty Field. The Little Foxes, starring Betty Davis. The Man Who Came to Dinner, with Monty Woolley, Betty Davis, Ann Sheridan. Gary Cooper and Barbara Stanwyck starred in Meet John Doe. Gary Cooper was featured in Sergeant York. Cary Grant and Joan Fontaine in Suspicion. And 20th Century Fox put out a film that year which featured, among others, Glenn Miller and his orchestra. Its title was Sun Valley Serenade. And this is the way they sounded in the soundtrack recording of the Glenn Miller Orchestra with It Happened in Sun Valley. Get your favorite one to sit by your side. Cuddle up in the sleigh, giddy up, Nelly Gray, and away we go. While you listen to the sleigh bells ring, yodeling to your baby. You'll feel nice and warm, no matter how cold it may be. Take a look at little Jack and Jill, they ski down a hill. That's a snowplow turn, and look, there's a spill, there's a spill on the hill. When you're down, it's a thrill to go up again. Everybody ought to learn to ski, for that is how we first met. Jack and Jill that came down a hill When I looked at you, my heart took a spell Took a spill on a hill It's a thrill that I can't forget It happened in Sun Valley Not so very long ago There were sunbeams in the zone And a twinkle Three and a half years after making that film, Glenn Miller, too, was dead, a victim of World War II. He died in that uh, plane crash over the English Channel in 1944. On December 15th of that year, no further trace was ever found of Glenn Miller, certainly one of the great stars of the big band era, and a man who was very definitely at the height of his popularity in 1941. Another of the big band leaders who was so extremely successful that year was Woody Herman, 
a man who is still equally successful now, 30 years later. Woody, what were you doing on December 7th of 1941? What were the circumstances? Uh, we were playing the, the Strand Theater in New York City, and, uh, and I heard about it that morning, and, of course, we started with morning shows, and it, except on Sunday was a later day. Otherwise, I would have probably been on stage when the news came through to begin with. What reaction did you have immediately? Well, probably the same horrible reaction that every other American in the, anywhere in the world had when they first heard about this. It changed things a great deal for the Woody Herman Band uh, in the first place. Uh, did you go on with your shows for the rest of that day? I don't think we did. Uh, uh, my memory is faulty about that, but uh, I think we went on home and then came back the following day. Uh -huh. Now, uh, of course, many of you, uh, your musicians of that day were lost almost immediately because of the fact that war was declared and the draft, I'm sure, caught many of them up. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, there was a, uh, during those war years, uh, there was a constant movement of men uh, in and out of our bands. You know, we were the, and we had to get by as best we could. Did you find, uh, like the Major League Baseball teams, that there were many people who might not have had the chance to play with one of the named big bands who had to take over because so many of the other good musicians were away in uniform? Yeah, this happened on occasion, except that, uh, like anyone else, you, uh, you had to fill a chair or fill a position. But as soon as you found someone who was available that uh, wasn't caught up in the draft right at that moment, you made a very fast switch. <laughs> And uh, in my particular case, I think one of the unusual happenings, in a, and it was certainly unusual as far as I was concerned, is the fact that I wound up with probably one of the best bands I ever had in my entire life. Uh, it was during that, uh, when the draft and the war was at its height. Who were some of the members of that band? Well, of course, it was known later as the first heard, but um, actually that band was kind of a came out of the remains of the band that plays the blues, which was the yeah. first band from the end of 1936, when we organized November of 1936, to uh, along about 43, 42, actually, when we started to lose men constantly. And so by 1944, we had an entirely whole, practically whole new group of people. And in this group, we wound up with people like Bill Harris and Flip Phillips and uh, uh, Chubby Jackson and, and Davy Tuff and, uh, and then later Pete Condoli and, of course, then uh, later, quite a bit later, Conrad Caza when he was released from the Navy joined our band as, as lead trumpet. Do you have any special record that you look back on as having made the band at that point? No, because I, uh, I think it's a combination of many different facets and different things. I think the records naturally were probably of the most, uh, imp had the most import, but uh, by, by the same token, uh, our personal appearances in playing theaters and playing hotels like the Sherman in Chicago and the Pennsylvania Hotel in New York City, I think, had a great deal to do with uh, and our radio network time, mm -hmm. and then later a radio commercial. Uh, had a great deal to do with the success and popularity of the band, so I don't think it was any one record or any one particular thing. I think it was a combination of everything. Also, we were doing some very wild wartime movies at the time, 
which uh, I don't know, they may have hindered our success. <laughs> <laughs> what were the titles of somebody? Well, the first one we did was a potpourri of something or other, and it was called What's Cooking? And the people like the Andrews sisters and Donald O'Connor made his comeback in this picture at the age of 14. <laughs> and... Uh, if, if there was an apt description, I mean, they were cheap wartime musicals. <laughs> was Winter Wonderland one of those? Uh, yeah, but it was just Wintertime was the title of it. A Wintertime. Winter it was a Sonia Henney picture. Yes. And that was a big budget picture. That, oh, was it really? That shouldn't come under the same category. <laughs> that uh, was one of the most unlikely situations. I don't know what Woody Herman and his orchestra would have been doing out in the backwoods uh, someplace <laughs> on their way to an extremely distant one-night stand, apparently. <laughs> And you got stranded in the woods. Was that the the theme of this? No, movie? no, not really. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> she was a princess, and um, who was a, who had to, they had to find an excuse for her to ice skate. So they they built uh, someone got this old castle and turned it into a resort place, and that's how our band was ah. caught up in the ski country, so I to speak. See. That was Woody Herman. Earlier we heard from Marty Shaw. You notice how we clarinet players managed to stick together on these one-night stands. If you've been thinking about a new car, think Chevrolet. And think Russo Chevrolet in Windsor Locks. Right now, Russo has an outstanding selection of 1971 Chevys at exceptionally low end-of-the-year prices. Chances are you can get the beautiful new Chevy you've been wanting at a price far below what you'd expect to pay. Russo also has an excellent selection of 1971 demo models and used cars for you to choose from. All low, low priced so Russo can clear them out before the end of the year. Stop in tomorrow and buy knowing that when you buy from Russo, you buy dependability. You can count on Russo for both sales and service. Russo has 13 certified mechanics ready to go to work with the very latest equipment to keep your car in the best possible condition. Take the Bradley exit from I-91, then the first exit to Russo. That's R-U-S-S-O. Russo Chevrolet, directly across from Bradley International in Windsor Locks. By the time 1941 rolled around, Frank Sinatra had already been with Tommy Dorsey's orchestra for very close to two years, steadily growing as a big band singer. And at this point, he revealed a new facet of his talent. He wrote a song, the one we're about to hear, and it resulted in one of Tommy Dorsey's most successful records. Joe Bushkin provided the Celeste introduction, and the famous T.D. trombone emerged from an ensemble of muted trombones in the second chorus, recorded May 28, 1941. Frank Sinatra, the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, and this love of mine. This love of mine Goes on and on Though life is empty Since you have gone You're always on my mind It's lonesome through the day And oh, my 
it's bound to break Since nothing matters Let it break I ask the sun and the moon The stars that shine What's to become of it This love of Sinatra with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra of 1941. Also that year, a film called Two Latins from Manhattan starred Joan Davis and Jinx Falkenberg. And there was a song in it with words of music by Bobby Troop, a song called Daddy. And this best-selling record came out by Sammy Kay and his orchestra. Everything, Daddy, you want to get the best for me. Yeah. 
1941, a great many songs were written. Do you remember any bonds today? All That Meat and No Potatoes, Boogly Woogly Piggly, Chicka Chicka Boom Chick. That's one Carmen Miranda did in the movies. There was one called Bounce Me Brother with a Solid Four. The Hutsut Song. He's 1A in the Army and he's A1 in my heart. Mad About Him, Sad Without Him, How Can I Be Glad Without Him Blues. And my favorite of them all, Alexander the Swoose, Half Swan, Half Goose. And it was also the year of the big band theme songs. Redskin Rumba, played by Charlie Barnett and his saxophone and orchestra. This also from 1941, the beautiful Claude Thornhill theme, the marvelously descriptive Snowfall.
And there was Jimmy Dorsey's theme song with his alto saxophone, Contrasts. And the incomparable Duke Ellington's Take the A Train. big bands. Les Brown, the band of renown, and Leapfrog. Just a few of the many big band theme songs that were written, published, and played so often in 1941. theme song on a one-night stand with the big bands tonight, we have been using, appropriately enough, another record from 1941, another of the big hits by the Harry James Orchestra, called Music Makers. It was so successful, that's the way he built his band for the next 30 years to come, right through this year. Thank you for joining us on tonight's one-night stand with the big bands. Tonight, reminiscing about the world of 1941 and the music we were enjoying then. Our program was engineered by Mike Russell. Our producer was Brian Hartnett. This is Arnold Dean. On our January one-night stand with the big bands, our guest will be Woody Herman. I hope you'll join us.
You have been listening to some of our collection of big band radio broadcasts from the golden age of radio broadcasting in the USA. Thanks for tuning in to our internet podcast. Join us again soon for another in this series of big band old time radio programs. And continue to check out our two websites www.bigbandremote.com and www.radiothen.network.